Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle, creator of the Teenage Personality Quiz. Head to TalkingToTeens.com for a free PDF explaining how your teenager thinks. We are here today with Cynthia Kane. She's the author of How to Communicate Like a Buddhist, as well as Talk to Yourself Like a Buddhist, and the upcoming book, How to Meditate Like a Buddhist. Cynthia is a writer whose work has appeared in a number of great publications, including the Washington Post, BBC Travel, Yoga Journal, Refinery29, and the Huffington Post. She lives in Washington, D.C. She does workshops. She teaches courses. She coaches people on how to improve their communication, and she's developed a really, really savvy system for applying principles from Buddhism to communications with family, friends, and co-workers. And this book has a lot of stuff that I kept just saying, oh man, parents need to know about this. Parents could use this. Yep, teenagers do this all the time. Parents need to know how to respond to that. Really excited to talk to Cynthia about all of the concepts from this book, including how to be a better listener, but not just to other people, but how to listen to yourself better, and then how to communicate in an empowered way. Cynthia, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show today. The book is How to Communicate Like a Buddhist, and it's an instruction manual for clear communication. So um, I read this book. It's a quick little book. It's just jam-packed with great advice and sage wisdom that is uh, helpful for anybody. I found a ton of stuff in here that's useful in business and friendships and all kinds of relationships, but definitely a lot of things reading this book that hit me as being really, really important for parents and especially for parents of teenagers because that's what we talk about here. So um, I just found this super insightful and super helpful. So I was really curious what, how you became this Buddhist communication expert and what was your path to then creating this book? So this all came about really unexpectedly for me. I I used to be a horrible communicator. I was extremely passive aggressive and um, I was very, very reactionary. And I had a lot of judgment in my interactions and just had a hard time with silence and, and really being comfortable within interaction, really. I was in a relationship for about seven and a half years and he was my first love and we decided to go our separate ways and then believing that we would be able to come back together at the time when it was right and we did come back together 
and we had conversation around, you know, what wasn't working within our relationship and so much of it had to do with communication. So, you know, we decided, okay, let's see if we can come back together again. And then a few months later, he passed away unexpectedly. Um, he was a river guide and he was from Costa Rica and he got caught in a, in a swell and uh, he drowned and it changed my life really forever. It was in this place of just emptiness that I realized that I was going to have to find out how to enjoy my time here. I went on this search to figure out how to feel better in the world. And it led me to a meditation and writing workshop at the Shambhala Institute in New York. And that was where I was introduced to the elements of right speech in Buddhism, which are to tell the truth, don't exaggerate, don't gossip and use helpful language. And when I was introduced to those elements, I thought to myself, this is my path. This is the way out of suffering because what I, what I found for me was that it all came down to how I communicated. So if I wanted to you know, shift the way I was living in the world, it meant I was going to have to change how I interacted with it, which then meant I had to change how I interacted with other people, which then meant I had to figure out how to communicate with myself differently. And so once I was introduced to the elements of right speech in Buddhism, it became kind of this experiment, this lifestyle experiment of how do I then put this into practice? And so that's really what I have cultivated a practice to implementing the elements of right speech. So how do you actually speak in a kind, honest, and helpful way? And that's what the, the, the book is about. And I began writing about this topic and the practice itself, which I call intentional communication. And then, you know, a editor from a publishing company saw what I was working on and asked if I was interested in, in writing a book. And I said, I would love to. <laughs> then it became this series of how to communicate like a Buddhist and then talk to yourself like a Buddhist. And my next book is coming out in the end of April, how to meditate like a Buddhist. So I work with people and I, I train people how to shift the way that they communicate into this more responsive instead of reactive place. You talk about this story in the book, this experience of your friend in Costa Rica and this really unexpected passing away. And there's a term that you use called bodhisattva. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yeah, so the, a bodhisattva is someone who is here to commit to relieving the suffering of others. And that is what I was really seeking. I was really looking for someone to come in to my life to make me feel better in that moment. And that's when I realized it wasn't possible, that it really had to come from me. So I ended up kind of seeking out the qualities of a person who commits to, you know, relieving suffering of others, the bodhisattva path, and started to see if I could incorporate those qualities within my life. And so I like where you go with it. In this book, you kind of break it up into three sections. There's sort of like the self self talk, mm -hmm. and then the speech, kind of how to how to talk more mindfully, and then silence, and when how to when to use silence. And you also break up the listening part into listening to yourself 
and listening to others, which I thought was really, really insightful because it starts with listening to yourself. So how do you do that? Um, and where do people get caught up with that? So listening to ourselves is, I mean, it really is the beginning of being able to interact with others in a more compassionate way. It's really starting to become aware of the language that you're using that is causing you to feel badly or causing you to feel stress or overwhelm or causing you to feel discomfort in any way and starting to pay attention to the language you're using. And once you're aware of how you're talking to yourself, then you can begin to dive a little deeper into shifting it. The other piece of listening to yourself is really listening to that voice inside that often we gloss over, we, we don't really pay attention to. And it's beginning to trust yourself again so that you know that what it is that you have to say is valuable and what it is that you have to say is necessary because so often it's very easy for us to think we don't need to say something or maybe we're overreacting or maybe it's really not that big of a deal. When we start to listen to ourselves, we can really begin to see that our needs are valuable enough to be met. But it first really begins with paying attention to the language that you're using. Any language that is, you know, I should be doing this, any like absolute language of I'm always late or, you know, I've never been good at these things. It's all language that constricts us, that contracts us, yeah. that uh, sub subtracts from us and it doesn't allow us to grow or change. I love some of the tips that you have in here. The should actually was one that I specifically had marked down because I love this idea of taking the shoulds and changing them to coulds. And I think it's so, this is such a big thing for parents because it's so easy to look at everyone else's family and everyone always just looks so perfect from the outside. And there's so many shoulds just kind of hitting you from all directions as a parent, I think. And you're constantly second guessing whether you're doing it right or whether you're, you know, should be doing something differently or doing something better. So how do you, how do you start noticing those kind of things and shifting the voice in your head? Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I, so, you know, I have uh, two children and there's that doubt in the constant questioning, right? And the, I, sh I, I should be burping them right now. I mean, I know that young, but. <laughs> wow. So-and-so's kid already got into whatever and they're already starting this and my kid's only doing whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it really is committing each day to saying to yourself, okay, today I'm going to notice when I am comparing myself to other people, when I am using the word should, but it's also, there's a subtle language in our heads that we don't even notice that's saying I need to be, or I have to be as well as, you know, I should be. So it's starting to notice also who you're around when you use the word should. Mm. And you know, really starting to carve out maybe at least, you know, if you can, five minutes to write down all the shoulds that you think. So taking a piece of paper and writing down 15, 20 shoulds 
Mm. And then going through and doing the exercise of saying, okay, I could be feeding my kids an all vegan diet. And instead I'm choosing to introduce them to different food, right? But what you're starting to begin to see is that you have a choice and you're, you're putting your attention somewhere else. So there's really no reason to be upset because um, it's a decision that you're making, right? It's kind of taking the control back and the power back. Yeah. And recognizing that it's a choice that somewhere along the line you've chosen to do it this way. Um, right. You chose not to be the president of the PTA. And if you really right. wanted to do that, you, you could have. Or do it. Yeah. I think that's so powerful. And the other one you talked about was the always and the nevers, which I think is for for parents, especially it can really get to, uh, man, it seems like we just are always I'm always having this same fight with the kid or we're always late or there, you know, the patterns take a long take a long time to change. Sometimes it can just feel like you're beating your head against the wall and it, you're never getting anywhere. Mm hmm. So what, what what do you do when you find those thoughts kind of surfacing or bubbling around in your head? I mean, I think it's using those moments as kind of your cues to start talking to yourself differently in that moment in that it becomes something that happens. Maybe it's happened once and then in your mind it's, you know, I, I always, you know, fighting to get out the door in the morning, let's just say. You can shift the language so you can say, you know, today it took a long time for us to get out the door. Tomorrow will be different. So you want to start bringing it so that it's relative language and it's not absolute. So you start saying that today this happened and tomorrow can be different. And that helps detach from that feeling that things are going to continue in the same way over and over and over again. And there, there's no opportunity or room to change. And then also in those moments, reminding yourself that, you know, this is adolescence or this is what happens developmentally at these stages can be helpful too. One more thing I loved from the chapter on listening to yourself is the idea of nothing and how we often say nothing's wrong or that we're fine when we don't really mean that or that's not really how we feel. So why is this in the chapter on listen to yourself and not in the chapter on talking and saying this is how I feel? Well, it's in the listening to yourself so that we can start to become really honest with ourselves. I think often what happens is we pretend that everything is fine because we want everything to be fine. And again, it should be fine. Right. Everyone else is fine. So it should be fine. We should be able to handle all of this. Yeah. I shouldn't be so worked up about this. Right. And so it really comes down to getting quiet and going inward to be able to see what do I really want? Right. What do I really need? How do I really want to be interacting? How can I start to trust myself more? And so that's why it's really in the listening to yourself because you have to be able to get quiet and really see 
that being honest with yourself is the key to interacting in the way that is going to be helpful to you and to others. Yeah, you can never be honest with other people about it until you can be honest with yourself about it, I guess. But you have, you, you have to be self-aware before you can then go tell other people about it. Yeah. And to be able to know exactly what needs to happen instead of tiptoeing around things or not really expressing a boundary right. or being able to be consistent. So then after listening to yourself, then you talk about listening to others. And there's a lot of great stuff in here. I think this is one of the big things for parents. You know, we can all be better listeners. And it's so easy to be planning in your head what you're going to be saying next or thinking about something stressful that happened today uh, while you're, you know, in the middle of a conversation or realize that your kid was trying to tell you something and you just haven't been paying attention for the past 30 seconds because you were kind of thinking about something else. So how, how do you get better at noticing that and bringing yourself back when that happens? Mm -hmm. It's a lot like meditation. So with meditation, you sit and you watch your thoughts coming in and out. And when you notice that you're caught up in a story or you notice that a thought is taking you to another thought that then has you, you know, thinking about tomorrow and 10 years from now or what didn't happen or you notice that you're distracted you say, okay, thanks for sharing. And then you come back to your point of focus and meditation, which, you know, could be your breath, could be a mantra, it could be many different things. So within conversation, it's the same. So it's being in communication and noticing that you're no longer there. And it's that moment that you notice that you're not there, which is such the, a beautiful moment because then you get to redirect. So then you notice, okay, I am over here planning what's happening next week. I want to be with my child right now. I'm just going to say thanks for sharing. I see that distraction. And then I'm going to come back to my point of focus, which is, you know, the conversation I'm having with my, my son or my daughter. And then when you're back in the present moment, you remind yourself that, you know, here is my child. I love them. I want to be helpful to them. I want to support them. I want to give them the opportunity to share with me in the same way that. I love the opportunity to share with them. And so then that kind of grounds you back into the present moment and reminds you of your intention, which is to really help yourself and the other suffer less. And to do that, it's by being present with your attention. Yeah, I like this little scene you have in here where you are at the grocery store and you're just thinking about something that happened earlier say standing between the broccoli and me brian put his hands on my shoulders and said we're in the grocery store now whatever happened in class let it go we're here now sometimes it's easier to notice in somebody else that they're distracted than it is to notice it in yourself <laughs> you know so it's nice to have someone to kind of be your partner in reminding each other about these things or helping you know um, each other kind of do this this communication practice yeah. And I think the one piece to that is making sure that we're open to hearing that and not taking it as a um, criticism, right? Or a judgment. 
Well, yes, because that's another thing that I loved about this chapter. I'm listening to others. You have this section on page 96 where you talk about how a lot of times when you're in a conversation with somebody and they make a comment like, why are you getting so defensive? Or can you let me finish? It's like just so hard not to lash out at them or fire back with something, you know, I'm not defensive, I'm da 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 or right? And so you talk about, though, that actually a lot of times the reason that we react like that is because on some level we feel like they're right or there's some truth to what they're saying, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think that what is so helpful in those moments is to accept what is true, and that is really difficult to do. In that moment when I'm in the grocery store and Brian is saying, you're here in the grocery store now, it takes all my energy to be able to say, you're right. I right. am in the store right now. Right? I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not distracted. Moment. I'm fine. I'm, I'm good. Right. And that, But that comes back to what we were talking about before, right? In that moment, it's so easy to say, I'm fine. It's not a big deal. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. Yeah. When that's just a lie, right? And so if you follow the elements of right speech in Buddhism, to tell the truth, I mean, it shifts the way that you show up, but it's so it's so liberating to be able to just own it and say, you're right. I got really frustrated and I walked out and I shut the door and I shouldn't have done it that way. And you handle it in the moment with your son or your daughter. If you, you end up having an interaction you're not super proud of in that moment, it's saying, wow, I'm really sorry. That was really not helpful. I was really frustrated. Okay, well, I think what makes this particularly difficult with teenagers is that they're not like Brian so nicely saying, um, right. <laughs> oh, hey, be here in the store. They're saying, Mom, you never listen to me. Why are you so distracted all the time? Like, oh, this is so, this, you're such a terrible listener. Uh. Um, and it really, it's really, it's really hard not to get defensive um, yeah. and to react. So I think it's like uh, all, some of these problems that are just communication problems, when you throw a teenager into the mix, um, it can just like blow the whole thing up. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. I mean, and that's why it's, it's more, you become more of an observer when you try to kind of adopt this practice, because what what helps is when you feel detached from the language, you're not as drawn into it anymore because you understand your responsibility within, right, within an interaction of being responsible for your words and your reactions and how you're using silence and how, you know, your body language. And then the other is responsible for those exact same things for themselves. But what you have in common is the health of the conversation itself. And so in those moments where, you know, your teenager is responding in that way. It takes so much energy, but the reminder there is, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to pause. I'm going to breathe. And then I'm going to remind myself that my purpose right now is to keep the integrity of the conversation intact. And to do that, it means accepting what's true, or it means letting them know that that's not something that you appreciate hearing or whatever you're feeling maybe in the moment. But it does come down to really being able to detach a little bit more, which is difficult to do. You know, you're very personally connected, yeah. very much connected to your children. Um, so there's a lot of work that goes on around that, too. We're here with Cynthia King 
talking about how to communicate with your teenager like a Buddhist. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. It takes one person to change the conversation. Because the more you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the worse you feel about things. The more we say things to ourselves, the more we believe those things. And then the more we believe those things, the more we act on those things. If, you know, your teenager is gossiping about their friends to you, instead of using it as a way to bond, because a lot of gossip is used in the sense of bonding with people. And it's very easy to feel connected to your child in that way, if you're bonding over other people. But, you know, in those moments where they're going on and on, you don't have to um, engage with it. You can simply just be present with it. I mean, you can say, I'm not really interested in hearing these types of things about your friends. I don't think it's helpful. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.